my daughter asked me to watch a movie with her. It was uh, I, I, for the most part, my philosophy on children's movies is that I don't watch them because their whole purpose is to occupy my children uh, in order to allow me to do uh, anything else. So I, I don't I don't watch them. But but in this particular case, I sat down with her. She was she she insisted. She really wanted me to see it. She thought I would like it. It was called Encanto. It's a new Disney movie. And it's it's cute. It's charming. It's it's colorful and, and well done. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, narratively it it relied a little a little heavily on a sort of a a, a an arbitrary magical device, but that's fine. It did though, it it was, you know, what was maybe kind of interesting about it is that the real subject of the movie was talent. It was about talent, the nature of talent, uh, how people deal with talents, how talents run in families, how one deals with talentlessness. It was about the Madrigals, who were kind of uh, an early 20th century magical realist Colombian royal Tenenbaums. They, uh, they're a magical family, and, and in childhood, each of them receives a a special magical gift. One of them controls the weather with her feelings. One of them can cure uh, any illness or, or injury with her food. Uh, another can hear anything for miles around. Another can shapeshift. Another is uh, prodigiously strong, and so on and so on. Another one uh, uh, is 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 very beautiful and makes flowers bloom. Is her is her her gift? She's sort of the Instagram influencer of the tribe. Uh, and, and it's fine. You know, it has, it deals a little bit with some, some of the, the challenges of a a talent centered life. It talks about how, when you are very talented and everyone knows you're very, very talented and rewards you for your talents and, uh, celebrates you for your talents, there can be some pressure that comes with that blessing. So that's true. And that was fine. Uh, there was also... I thought, interestingly, one family family member, one madrigal named Bruno. And the refrain of the song about Bruno is, we don't talk about Bruno. Bruno is the black sheep of the family. He is among all the madrigals who are very prosperous, who are the sort of the, the, the aristocracy of the small Colombian town. They are... Uh, they, they are uh, widely ad- admired for their talents. Their lives are all built upon, structured around their talents. Their talents are celebrated and rewarded richly. And uh, they, they are all pretty healthy, happy, and thriving, except for Bruno. <laughs> Bruno is the one madrigal who whose talent led directly to his alienation from and eventually his his self-imposed exile from both the the Madrigal family and the community at large. Bruno spends 10 years living in his own filth in total solitude, talking with rats and cockroaches, uh, a, a cursed among men and cast out of society because of because of his talent, Bruno's talent, uh, an especially 
uh, antisocial uh, uh, magical gift is is telling the future. So he he gets blamed for all the bad things that happen. He uh, Bruno also is also sort of a Cassandra figure, but but what I found you know most striking about this story about talent and about people specifically who have unusual sort of uh, uh, demonstrative flashy self-sufficient attention getting talents for these people in particular they were all very uh successful except for bruno there was one of them who was a who was a basket case who was you know borderline schizophrenic uh wreck uh played by a very twitchy john leguizamo it's a cartoon but you know he, he voices it and uh, and he's the exception. And, you know, and th- there's also Mirabelle, who's the, the main character, and she does not, she's not given a talent at birth. And and unlike unlike probably the real world Mirabelle, who would have been encouraged nonetheless to express herself with, uh, you know, a series of uh, uh, decreasingly convincing forays into, uh, you know, one art form or another, all the while, uh, uh, being assured by her family and friends that she simply hasn't found her voice yet or found her medium yet. Uh, this Mirabelle was, was universally acknowledged in childhood to have no talent <laughs> and, then, and then became quite well-adjusted and very sensitive, became a really understanding, compassionate member of the magical family. She, of course, you know, her, her secret talent is, is is actually revealed to be basically leadership when she... Uh, you know, toward the end of the movie, brings everybody together with her rich understanding of human nature and becomes the new uh, Madrigal family uh, matriarch. So Mirabelle does just fine. But, you know, what I told my daughter when she asked me, you know, she said, well, what did you think of Encanto? I said, well, Encanto was great. I'm, I thank you for showing it to me. I, I loved it. I would just like to to pitch Disney on a sequel to Encanto set in a parallel universe, a parallel version of this uh, magical realist early 20th century Columbia, and uh, in which uh, the, it, it also concerns the Madrigal family. And the, the main character is also Mirabelle. But uh, instead of there being uh, lots of prosperous Isabellas and uh, Luisas who, who exercise their talents uh, with, with uh, relish and, you know, maybe occasional friction, but mostly an unbroken enthusiasm and support from the community and generously rewarded uh, success. Instead of a family of Isabellas and Luisas with one Bruno, mine would be a family just that's all Brunos. It would be one Mirabella who's untalented but well-adjusted and then, and then you know, nine Brunos who are all indigent, uh, babbling to themselves, living with roaches and, and, and rats and uh, exercising their talents to to their own uh, to to the, to the chagrin of those around them and to their own increasing alienation and despair. I would call this version Disencanto, and it would end when uh, the last of the Brunos uh, dies of a drug overdose in the uh, magical realist gutter, and Mirabelle uh, starts a nonprofit called We Talk About Bruno, dedicated to raising awareness in the community of the dangers of talent. <laughs> I asked my daughter what she what she thought of my idea of this movie, and she she gave me a very patient smile, and she said, "Daddy, I don't think 
you think that children would really like to watch that movie. And, you know, 20 years from now, when I'm uh, living in the gutter and and singing songs to my uh, rat and cockroach friends, I, w- I will look back on that moment as, as the very last time that my beloved daughter ever asked me to watch a fucking movie. <laughs> Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Oh, my uh, my producer, my producer, has told me to start every show by saying, uh, "Slee Rickets, you're you're listening to Slee Rickets, the number one hostile poetry podcast in the U.S." And then in the note it says in parenthesis, number six overall. so uh take note take note thank you all for listening thank you uh especially to those of you who have uh taken a moment over your over your holiday break to (laughs) to tell your drunk racist uncle about this podcast that he might really he might find quite appealing apparently this is a little this is an odd this is an odd show today I, i promised a better structured episode this week and promise not fulfilled but it is i think it should be sort of somewhat interesting I, I, it's going to come in a couple of different parts uh first i just wanted to say i've as i've been thinking a lot lately about lies and i'm going to come back to this more i think in another episode but you know i've, I've been thinking about lies and sort of specifically uh, lies one tells oneself and with that in mind, I, I, I reread, I sat down recently and I reread The Wild Duck by, by uh, Henrik Ibsen. Great play. I mean, really a beautiful, beautiful play. Ibsen is always terrific on structure. I mean, you know, Hedda Gabler may be zero fun to sit through, but it's just exquisitely put together. So he's always worth reading for that. I mean, he's, a, he's like, a, you know, one of the majors, one of the great greats. But the wild duck is, it's this, you know, it, it is, it's as if he started to write one of his standard didactic plays and then he, he got distracted because it doesn't really, you know, it has a, a villainous industrialist and it has a, a sort of a cloudy headed, a silver spoon fed idealist and it has a a self-centered uh, negligent father and it has a a drunk cynical doctor but but somehow all of the warring messages in the play of all of them none of them ever quite comes out victorious they all seem to fall short when faced with this figure that he puts in this play of this 15-year-old girl, Hedvig. And Hedvig is, she's not saintly. She's not perfect, but she's kind and she's patient and funny. And she she desperately loves her mother and father and her grandfather. And 
And also, she loves this wounded wild duck. And when put up against the presence of Hedvig, all of the ideals, all of the morals, all of the lessons, all of the conclusions that the, 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 the older, mostly male, uh, bossy, uh, self-satisfied characters uh, present to one another, all of these sort of crumble next to Hedvig and finally next to Hedvig's absence. It's a really heartbreaking play in which, you know, I think because, or at least partly because Ibsen forgot to teach a lesson, he he just wrote a, a gorgeous piece of drama. It, it is, though, it, 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 is, it is concerned very much with lies. And, you know, with lies we tell each other. There, there certainly are some deceptions between the characters in the play, but but also in a really significant way with the lies we tell ourselves. There is a term that the 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 drunken cynical doctor uses, Dr. Relling. Relling uses this term life lie. The life lie. And he says when you take away the life lie of a man, you take away his reason for living. The the play is um, there's also you know Gregor's Werla, uh, who is the the snotty idealist in the play. He who is who has never really had to risk anything in his life. <laughs> he is very interested in in disabusing others of their denial of their self deceptions. And he, he considers this sort of the Lord's work that he's doing, going about <laughs> correcting people's lies to themselves. In this way, the wild duck is very much a kind of a precursor to the Iceman Cometh, the great uh, Eugene O'Neill play that is also concerned with, as Hickey in, in that play refers to them as uh, pipe dreams, the little little stories that the characters tell themselves to keep them keep to keep themselves going in the morning. Uh, though though really underneath it all they know, they know that they're they're lying to themselves. So the the, the wild duck is uh, there is a there is a terrible lie at the center of the story, which is that uh, which is that Hjalmar Ekdal, uh, husband of Gina Ekdal and father of Hedvig ekdal the the terrible lie is that he is in fact hedvig's father when it turns out her real father her true father is the uh, bitter selfish uh, joyless cold-hearted industrialist uh old werla and um Old Werla impregnated Gina when she was working as his maid, and then he he sort of uh, married her off to uh, Hjalmar, who who was a conceited young fool who uh, believed believed that Gina simply uh, was desperate to 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 marry him because she loved him so much, and accepted Old Werla's charity in setting him up with a profession because he he his whole life had been told he was special. All of his friends had thought he was special. In this way, he's a little bit like the Johan character in uh, Scenes from a Marriage, the old uh, Bergman Scenes from a Marriage. He's, he's sort of anointed, and he's, 
as we learn over the course of the play, he doesn't even really do the photography job that old Werla set him up with. It's actually Gina and Hedvig that do almost all of the work while sort of preserving Hjalmar's free time for, for, in order to, you know, so that he can daydream and work on his inventions. So it is a, it's, a, it's a sad story because, of course, uh, Gregor's Werla, old Werla's careless, uh, college-educated, stupid young son, Gregor's, is the one who makes a point of letting Hjalmar know that Gina slept with old Werla and ultimately that Hedvig is not Hjalmar's daughter. Hjalmar pitches a fit, thrusts Hedvig away from himself, goes on a bender with Dr. Relling, and Gregors convinces Hedvig that the best thing she can do is to shoot her pet duck because, because it is a symbol for everything that causes Hjalmar pain. Well, Hedvig does him one better and she shoots herself. And I'd forgotten how the play ends because, of course, everyone is crushed. Everyone is devastated by, by Hedvig's death. This sort of beatific, but still quite human figure. This totally innocent girl. I'd forgotten, though, that there's a good beat that comes after that. When Ekdal is in despair, is mourning this terrible loss, and Gina is comforting him, and Relling, the cynical old doctor, who's the one who believes in the life lie, he turns to Werla, who, to Gregor's Werla, the, the stupid kid who thought that he was helping everybody out by telling them the truth. Relling turns to Gregor's and he says, you think they're, they're going to live in the truth now? You think they see the truth now, Hjalmar and Gina, and they're just going to live authentically from now on? And Gregor says, well, well, obviously, how could they not? They've suffered this terrible loss. They've been, they've been scared straight. They see the light. And Relling says, no. Just wait. Wait six months. Wait a year. And he'll be giving, he'll be giving barstool lectures about, about his terrible loss and uh, the great, uh, the the great burden of of paternal love, and he will be wringing sympathy out of everyone around him, and he will have taken on a new role. He may even have woven himself a new life lie, or simply dusted off the old one. The moral, if there is one, isn't necessarily that you know, people should learn the truth about themselves, nor is it that they should be kept in the dark. It does seem to be the case that people, however, don't change. Whatever you do to them, whether you tell them the truth or not, they don't seem to change. Anyway, it's been on my mind, um, partly because I... I consider myself, if I'm not a Bruno, I'm a Hjalmar. I have, I mentioned, by the way, the concept, I asked my, my wife, the psychiatrist, about the concept of denial recently, and her response was basically to, uh, just to shrug. Denial is not, it, it sort of doesn't exist in psychiatric She's uh, uh, you know, like she said, the term codependent, which is a which is a a big term in pop psychology, but uh, among psychiatrists means uh, effectively nothing. Anyway, denial uh, also means nothing apparently to psychiatrists, but it it fascinates me, fascinates me. 
um, uh, as a uh, as a lifelong practitioner, <laughs> I'm always curious about it and whether I can learn a little more. So it is, as I said, I'm going to come back to this question. I have some other other things I want to look at, other other corners of it I want to investigate. But this week, I I'm going to bring you just a very a very particular slice of this conversation I had. So it is not a conversation about denial. It is, it is actually strangely for this, you know, uh, poetry podcast. It is, it is a conversation about honestly understanding oneself, about not lying to oneself, about really candidly looking at the place that something like poetry has in your life. And making a, an open-eyed decision about it. So, I, I, as I said, I did not plan on sharing this conversation with you. I didn't even uh, plan to record it. But I do, all, I do all my interviews right now on Zoom until I have a, you know, a better studio set up here. Um, it's easier to do it over Zoom. And in order to make sure I never lose audio, I have my Zoom settings, my, my Zoom meeting room set to auto-record as soon as I sign in. So I had a conversation with an old friend this week, Jeff Colosino. I went to grad school with him. He, he got an MFA at uh, Johns Hopkins. Unlike me, I think he got in straight away rather than <laughs> on the wait list. He's, he's a terrific writer and uh, a, a even better uh, human being. I lived with him for a couple of years and uh, really enjoyed uh, his company throughout my time in Baltimore. He, you know, he and I worked on poems side by side for a couple of years and talked about them every day. And after he graduated, Jeff stopped writing. Well, he, he stopped writing poems. He stopped writing poems and fiction and anything you might call creative writing and he taught himself to code. And he's now a senior engineer at Amazon. He's doing very well. He lives in Seattle with his brilliant wife, Natalie, who's a philosopher, who, who was patient enough to sit down with me at a bar some years ago and explain the concept of jouissance uh, to su such that I, 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 I felt as if I, I actually understood it, at least at the time. Uh, I, I would actually, I'd love to get her on the podcast as well at some point. But, you know, Jeff and I were just having a conversation as friends. But about an hour and a half in, he started talking about his experience with poetry in a way that touched on some of the questions that are really at the heart of what I talk about on this podcast. And so at, after our conversation or at the end of our conversation, he, he very generously offered to let me uh, publish this little part of it, because I was not planning on doing so, the, the audio is a little muddy. It's not quite of the quality that I, that I normally try to, to maintain, but, but it is, I think it's pretty intelligible and it is certainly worth hearing. Uh, it is, I would say it is, it is a pretty good companion piece to an episode of Poetry Says that came out recently that is that is all about quitting poetry. It's called it's either either called either called quitting poetry on or on quitting or something like that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But that's what Jeff talked about. He talked about not writing poetry, 
despite being someone who, who really understands it and loves it and has a great deal of experience with it. He's not quitting as an outsider. He, he quit as an insider and, and sometimes comes back to it. So that, that's what we talk about. It, is, it was a very long conversation, but I just excerpt, I'm excerpting here a, a slice of 20 or 30 minutes that I think are really worth hearing. So this is Jeff Colosino. Uh, I don't think he's really on social media because unlike uh, the rest of us, he's got a real fucking career <laughs> doing, doing real deal uh, work for Amazon, uh, like my fancy sister-in-law. So uh, Godspeed, Jeff. And as I'll say another word late, you know, you'll, you'll hear him mention he and his wife, Natalie, are, are any day now expecting their first child. So uh, we, he mentions that briefly, and I may say one more word about that at the end of the episode. But this is Jeff Colosino. As I said, the audio is a little rougher than usual, but I think you're going to enjoy this one. So I'm curious, do you, you know, I remember you talked a while ago when you were learning to code, which as I recall, you sort of did, you and my brother actually around the same time kind of taught yourselves to code. And you talked about some of the, some of the patterns of thought and problem solving being parallel yeah. to poetry. As I'm sure like as you've, as you've done more of it, it's, it's taken on more of its own, a life of its own. Yeah. It's increasingly less that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, sure. You know, I think, uh, you know, and I don't know, maybe if I had stuck with poetry longer, I would feel more the same way about poetry. But, you know, I think that, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a, it, you know, it could be a failure of imagination on my part, to be fair, but like sort of the, like approaching like a, like an asymptote of like how, how much how much more I'm discovering every time I sit down to, to, to write code. But, you know, I'm, I'm actually working. I actually just don't write as much code anymore. <laughs> like sort of like moved a little further away from that. And I'm now quite happily, you know, working less with code and more with just people. So, you know, it's sort of swung the other way, but yeah, I mean, like it doesn't, it doesn't stick quite as much when it um, feels like you know more and of like, there's not like as much of the treasure map that, you know, you haven't walked. And that feels, you know, it feels very braggadocious. It's like, ah, I, I've seen everything there is to see and learned everything there is to learn mm -hmm. about coding. Like, no, I definitely haven't, but um, I'm not, driven by the urge to discover new ways to express things sort of at that level. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think that, I mean, that sounds very familiar. And I, I think like partly what you're saying about there's a period of like badness where you just, you're so floundering, you can't really do anything. And then there's probably like a sweet spot where you have enough capability, but the chemical reaction is still fresh enough. Yeah, you know, it's like I, mean, I remember just like chemistry class in high school. Like, you'd watch the the early part of the reaction, and then later there would still be something happening, but it'd be sort of fizzling in a milder way. And I think that there is something like that with 
So the janitor is sweeping away the, uh, you know, like the volcano that, you know, late in the late in the microwave setting when you're like, oh, there goes another kernel, you know, like there was still one more left. I do think there's something of that too. Yeah. Creativity. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, you know, I think there's, there also are ways to renew that some, but I do think that there are a lot of people who have sort of settled, established careers and you'd sort of just keep like cranking up the microwave again. You're like, whoa, just, it's done. There's not, that's <laughs> got to find something else, get a new bag to do something. Uh, that is, that is like, sure. try to try to do the same thing in a different language. There are many different kinds of things that you can you know, try to build when when you're programming, and I'm only building a subset of them. And maybe if I branched out into a different area of development, other than button you click on a website, like you know, I might I might find that sense of discovery again too. I don't know. There's also you know a always like when you're working on sort of coding problem, like the kind of problems that we use for like interviews or something like that, right? Where it's like really abstract. There are any number of possible solutions and we're sort of assessing, you know, like this solution achieves the same result more or less elegantly or more or less efficiently. But also, unlike poetry, there are also solutions that fail. Like, I mean, like there is, you know, like it still has to, there are also, you know, like it has to do the thing, yeah. you know, and there's a constraint that like there are, there are, you know, combinations of lines of code I can write that, that fuck up, that, you know, have defects, that have bugs, that, you know, either, you know, uh, subtly have a problem with them that you don't notice until somebody tries to do a particular thing or that are just like no complete failure disasters you know and there's no there's no pass or fail condition <laughs> you know in the same way for i mean i don't know maybe there is yeah. uh you know there are like glitchy things where you can have an accidental double entendre you know or like a like an awkward line mm. break you know where you're like oops that yeah. sounds like vomit now or you know um <laughs> But I think like probably the, the most likely result when you have failed solutions or, or like false combinations is is like white noise. It's like, what? What is this? Yeah. You know, it's just it's just static. It's just like I don't get it. Uh yeah. but I think a lot like so so much poetry people just expect not to get. Like they expect that result. So that then it's hard to say. And as you're saying oh, with a computer, like computer coding is even more formal than formal verse, in that like well, the computer didn't understand what you were saying. Like you said, yeah. do a thing, and it didn't do. Uh, or, or you created a situation where, like, the computer understood it perfectly and did yeah. what you said literally, and yeah. like a person, you know, yeah, yeah. You just asked now it to do somebody's dead. You know, right. yeah. This is the um, this is the uh, the joke about the computer reading the shampoo bottle, right? Uh, I don't know. Lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> this just, just, just keeps going forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, the, a, I read. I actually read a thing by who was the guy's name? What was the guy? I think it was a guy named Hay, like a computer thinker, philosopher guy. It's called the stamp collecting device. Do you know this? No, I don't know it. Basically, he's he's like, it's it's a thought experiment to show like possible problems with AI. Uh, he says like oh he says okay. 
it's like you're cre you create a code that says like for a stamp collector. Stamp collector's like, I love stamps. I would love to collect some more stamps. So I'm going to tell this AI to collect some stamps for me, and then it it yeah. ends up solving problems by like, well, I know what we should really do is we should mortgage your house, and then we should like we should get into like the cocaine trade to get more money to buy more stamps. Then we should we should end up like burning down forests in order to print more stamps. Oh, no. So we can have so we just like all things turn to stamps. I love this. Um, I wasn't aware of the stamp collecting device, but clearly somebody so somebody took this concept and made it into a game that I'm once once we're done talking today, it's a perfect little game. It's a very simple, it's like purely text-based. Um, I'll drop it into the Zoom chat. Um, called Universal Paper Clips. And you should you should read it or read it, play it. I think the genre of game that this is called, and you'll understand why when you play it, is it's a clicker, um, you know, and you're basically just you're you're manufacturing paper clips, and you just like increasingly optimize the means by which you manufacture paper clips, and it goes the way that a stamp collecting device might. Hours of fun. I I, I like. I've been talking to people recently who are like previously like pretty serious poetry world people, Joanna, but like even people sort of more into it than her who have so totally soured on poetry. I'm curious for you because you, you definitely like were fully, you got like full immersion baptism, but you've, you like you seem to sort of like slip away from it more like peacefully earlier on do you um, do you ever read it not much yeah uh, it's funny in this whole network of days that like you know led me to to reach out to you you know one of the uh things that happened was i, I talked to my therapist on you know and the poetry actually came up because it was uh i you know it i don't I just don't touch the stuff yeah. for the most. And when I do, A, I usually reach for something familiar, you know, and, and B, it takes a little bit of kind of grease to, to get me there. A little, you know, drinking or just feeling, you know, like kind of in a, in a more, uh, more of an emotional state, you know, then I'll reach for a poetry book and I'll, flip, 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 flip to like, you know, like a, a single <laughs> a hit, yeah. something, something right. I know, something I used to, you know, read out loud or, you know, whatever, and I'll let it hit me and I'll read another one and I'll read another one and then I'll lose my focus and I'll put it down. Part of the reason, you know, got me talking about it was because it used to be just like I was saying when we were talking about coding and stuff earlier is that there was always that sort of like motivation of discovery and like that. But like now it's sort of, it, it feels, and I don't know if this is just like inertia or if there's something bigger going on with it for me, but it feels like it's attached to a place that I don't have access to anymore. And like going there is almost like a little bit transgressive. And I don't mean like like a violation it means like it feels like uh naughty you know <laughs> or like uh 
like, like um, or indulgent or you know and which is not to say that i don't think about it all the time and it's not to say that i don't you know find ways to you know try to be lyrical in my you know sort of daily shit and you know like that i'm not indulgent like when i communicate you know at work or with friends or with family or like whoever like you know like i've tried to i've tried to hold on to that um i've tried to hold on to like the pieces of like that were like where there was like my personality and poetry and that middle part of that venn diagram you know it sort of you know that that still feels there and satisfactory but i don't think that's been serving me well you know because i think i you know there are rituals missing in my life now not even like you know like there's a lot of like i'm grateful for sort of like the richness that i have socially with like the people who are in my life and they all like you know even like they kind of know like oh yeah jeff jeff is or was a poet jeff is like that's you know like i carry it around still as like part of my identity but like you know natalie will also like make a joke you know about it sometimes too a, a real joke a joke that warms my heart um you know that like like yeah this guy really pulled like a bait and switch on me <laughs> you know i thought like uh you know sort of gonna be like a like a boho poet type and he's a tech guy wearing flannel uh you know <laughs> but yeah you know and as i sort of talked about feeling like oh like this sense of trepidation whenever i like try to try to pick up poetry or think about poetry or it's like oh that's because i was either writing it when i was really young and just had started writing poetry like as a teenager you know and it's like you know it's like oh then i'm writing something for like poetry night because we had like an event and you know slidell and i would write poems for that and read them for the people who you know came to that other high school kids right yeah but then you know in college it became like oh like now it's a thing i thing i do and i'm trying to learn to do better and then it was like just like straight on that train into grad school right you know and like i finished my thesis and like i was proud of it it was like not that it was better than somebody else's work or anything like that but that it was the best stuff that i had ever done yeah and then it's like oh shit like this train track like just now it hits a cliff <laughs> you know or or a tunnel that was painted onto the side of a, of a mountain what was the what was the cliff i think it was a lot of it i mean it's sort of tied to the community you know tied to tied to my friends tied to, to you and people like you and relationships that are really treasured you know and um but also you know tied to this sort of optimization machine that is like the mfa program you know and eventually you can't make the knife any sharper you know um <laughs> you have to you have to do things with the knife and i didn't have anything i wanted to cook at first like in the very very beginning it was just like i think just straight burnout yeah talk about my therapist a little bit more one of the things that i really they were talking about burnout for a different reason related to work but you know burnout isn't the thing that you think it means burnout isn't uh you know when like you just do something over and over again and you're out of energy and you're tired burnout is when 
is what happens is the result when your actions don't align with your values. That's sort of when I look back back on it, like you know, I handed in that thesis and well, literally that was the last time I wrote a poem, you know, the last things that I had to write for grad school. I felt like I had permission to not write <laughs> for the first time, but I had to keep it a secret, you know? You know the uh, the end of um, Joshua Beckman's "Your Time Has Come," the little tiny one. The last. Oh yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, the last page is. I wanted to stop writing, and the poem said, "It's a beautiful blue night. Stop writing." <laughs> yeah, you know, and I mean, and yeah, and then there's that, and then there's also just circumstance. There was a thing other than writing to do over and over again, a different thing. That was also rewarding. But yeah, like what I'm feeling now though is especially like sort of with all the kind of like emotional heightenedness of being about to be a dad, it's reflection time and taking inventory time and looking at what's missing time. And I don't know, literally, you know, I said I'll different versions of this, you know, in my therapy session. And, you know, you can see, so we just put this bookshelf in behind me and, you know, that's my books and Natalie's books kind of all mixed in. Uh, I'm sure this would frustrate uh, you. Maybe it wouldn't, uh, you know, but they're arranged by color. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what? What? <laughs> <laughs> Why? We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that because I have a defense for it. Uh, I have a defense for it that uh, you know maybe maybe you'll like maybe you'll reject. But uh, like, well, you got you got poetry back there. Like, go grab one. We're gonna do some exposure therapy right now. Like, go go get a book of poems. Like it, you know, it's like daring me. It's like, and you know, what happens? We're gonna do an experiment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're gonna be, you know. And I pulled, I don't have the other two down here, but I pulled, it's funny that you and JP were talking about Komunyaka because I hadn't listened to it before, but I pulled uh, this, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dan and Lunch Poems and uh, David Berman's collection, actual air. Oh. And I was like, okay. And he was just like, read one. He wasn't even asking me to read it out loud. But I, you know, like I said, I just kind of flipped to the hits and I went to the, the Day Lady Died and Lunch Poems. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's just like here's my fucking day, the poem, you know, and I, I read it and I read it and I read it and it connected to I picked it because it was like another thing we were talking about was just like sort of how I want like one of the things that the patan the pandemic has made hard and that I'm trying to find other ways to do, like we were talking about is like explore, just like go on a go on a walkabout, go buy two cartons of cigarettes, metaphorically speaking, or whatever. And then I got to the last four lines and I, I've read this poem dozens of times and I cried. I cried, yeah, you yeah. know, I cried because I felt like, like I felt like the gate kind of open to like a place that like I wasn't, that had been kicked out of or kicked myself out of. And maybe that's it. Maybe it was the, the, not the feeling of like, okay, you're good, but the feeling of like, welcome back but, yeah. but also the, but also but also but also like 
those four lines, you know, but also everyone and I stopped breathing. So I sort of, and that's, that's the, that's like the precipice I'm like kind of dangling on like today, you know, talking to you. The precipice of, of feeling the availability of poetry still there or. Yeah. Or at least, you know, the, yeah, yeah, no, the, the availability, cause even like, you know, the availability of trying to write it again. Right. Makes me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, w- I wonder for you, cause they're, what you're saying about, about like, having a kind of an initial interest or flirtation or curiosity and then discovering a knack and then developing that and sort of beginning to identify with it and sort of, as you said, riding this train of achievement and, you know, milestones, college, grad school, there's, there's something automatic to it. And most of the poets I know who've continued writing in a serious way, and this is true for me as well, had some point where they where they had to sort of stop and re, re rediscover writing not necessarily in some in any kind of like magical way or or like emotional way but but really to say like there's a point at which you like it stops being about trying to demonstrate that you're good at something or do well something that exists and it becomes about satisfying your own need like there's a thing i need or feel if there's like a crisis or there's something going on with me and this is a way to respond to that that it, it like it, it becomes more urgent to to put down you know in words or you know find some form for what's ailing you than it is to to do a good job at something in a way that other people will will recognize Mm-hmm. But it seems like what you're describing is like, it seems like the first half of that process was much of your experience up through grad school. And maybe there's at least the possibility that there could be that kind of, you know, turn, whether it, yeah. whether that's, whether that's something you, you know, pursue or not, maybe it's that you're in better faith with yourself as a person now. And so if you were to return, it would be a different thing. Yeah. Or even the notion of like a a return is like kind of a false choice for me. I can be I can be that rare bird like who is just like a dude who cares about poetry and enjoys poetry and isn't a poet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> well, it's, the, it's there. I mean, it's a return in the sense satisfying. That it's there. It's there for you. Like it's. Yeah. Those lines are no less for you than for anybody. And if you yeah. want, if you know about, if you know to go look for them, they're there. And that's yeah. like they were written with you in mind in some, in some. Yeah, I'm, I like I'm, that. But I'm curious about this thing you said about burnout being because it's not a way I'd thought about it. But burnout is when your actions are inconsistent with your values or it's it's the result it's not like the sure. definition of burnout. maybe burnout is like the the experience end of that situation or it's just the when that disjunction exists what the machine poops out is burnout you know i'm intrigued by that definition yeah. but i don't 
think I understand. Well, my values at the time, like, you know, sort of, it doesn't mean, it doesn't have to mean like my morals. It doesn't have to mean, you know, it might mean like my value is validation and acceptance. My value is a feedback loop where I get, you know, praise or criticism for, for doing a good job or a bad job, you know, a a split job. And I'm not getting the, I'm not getting the reward anymore. When I pull the lever, I get one marshmallow where I used to get two. And that's also, it's part of just like time, you know, like I was saying, I was, I was in my twenties when like, you know, like community and acceptance and belonging are so much more <laughs> important, so much more my motivation. And it is, I mean, it, and it, it like, it's so, uh, it's so consuming when you are living with and drinking with and sleeping with this little group of people and all you do and talk about all day is not just poetry, but like, largely the poetry you are all writing all the time yeah that's so or yeah or just even the the poetry you know like kind of like what, what you and jp were talking about like the 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 poetry adjacent yeah um uh, you know the the fun conversations that you get to have with like people who think at things from the side you know or who you know like really just want a rabbit hole on anything you assign them to rabbit hole on, right. you know? And I mean, I actually feel, I feel very, very lucky in a lot of ways. Cause like, I also, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't have to keep writing poems to feel like I belonged after that was over. I mean, you, you, you've struck me I mean, for really the whole time I've known you, but even especially in that period when we were both living in Baltimore, and had finished school you struck me as being like a real art of living guy (laughs) maybe it's just because i'm so much so bad at it that i don't that like you're maybe even maybe you were just average but it seemed so extraordinary to me (laughs) you're just like you know good at like you know like decorating and cooking and listening, like just sort of enjoying living in a way that was, that had a, a, an aesthetic sensibility, but was also always grounded in, in experience and in like a kind of a a rich enjoyment of being. I'll accept that. Yeah. And poetry and reading poetry and writing poetry and thinking about poetry and thinking about things, the way that poets think about things and talking about things, the way that poets talk about things. Yeah, that fits so well with that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, maybe I was I was learning to be a writer and also learning <laughs> you know, let's just reduce it to the two things, learning to be a writer and learning to to cook and how to really like care about and think about food at, at the same time. And one stuck. But yeah, no, I I think another, you know, part of it too, like the more I think about it, it wasn't that like because I was also surrounded, you know, by people who took, well, not just poetry, but writing, you know, like many of the people who were most important to me, you know, 
wrote fiction instead and that didn't make a difference. You know, I felt often, you know, not that like if I were to admit that like I don't want to write anymore, that like I would be rejected, but rather because it was something that continued to provide either fulfillment or like, you know, like a car to chase, you know, to these people who took it so seriously that it would be perceived as like rejecting them, you know? Oh, I think that's right. I think it's like, it's much closer to when you're the first of your friends to quit smoking. And it's like, it's not that everybody else is disappointed in you. It's that they're like suddenly unnerved by being around you you're better than us <laughs> right. like no we are garbage people we do garbage things <laughs> what do you mean you want to get out of the dumpster that we all live in that was uh, that was my conversation with jeff or it was it was a portion of my conversation with jeff I am uh, planning tentatively to to get Jeff back on to talk about Station Eleven, the the HBO series, and uh, and maybe the book it's based on. And I and I seriously would, uh, uh, Jeff, Natalie, if y'all are listening, I would love to get uh, Natalie on as well to talk some philosophy. Let's let's crack open a Platonic dialogue. Teach me teach me something. I did just very briefly. I want to read one little poem. This may be overly familiar to a lot of you, but uh, fuck it. It's too fitting not to use. Uh, Jeff and Natalie are truly any day now expecting a their first child, a little baby girl. So with, with all of the discussion of uh, hope and emotion and talent and compromise, I figured what better poem than Born Yesterday by Philip Larkin. This was originally published in his his second collection, The Less Deceived, which came out, when did it come out? The Less Deceived was originally published in 1955, and Born Yesterday was written on the occasion of Sally Amos's birth. Sally Amos was the daughter of Kingsley Amos and the sister of Martin Amos, who wrote Career Change or Career Turn, maybe it was called, a story that Brian and I discussed uh, recently about screenwriters and poets. Sally Amos was born in 1954. Uh, Larkin was very good friends with Kingsley Amos, Sally's father, and in honor of her birth, he wrote this little poem. It's called Born Yesterday. Tightly folded bud, I have wished you something none of the others would. Not the usual stuff, about being beautiful or running off a spring of innocence and love. They will all wish you that. And should it prove possible, well, you're a lucky girl. But if it shouldn't, then may you be ordinary have, like other women, an average of talents. Not ugly, not good-looking, nothing uncustomary to pull you off your balance. That unworkable itself stops all the rest from working. In fact, may you be dull, if that is what a skilled, 
vigilant, flexible, unemphasized, enthralled, catching of happiness is called. It's a short poem. It uh, takes the form of the, the priamel, the old classical form. Uh, not this, not that, but the other. I, others say this, some say this, I say that. Uh, and, and I, you know, it, it is, I think, reading it today, and especially <laughs> as the father of uh, a couple of girls, who's, I'm, I'm constantly on, on guard about uh, uh, praising uh, good looks versus other traits, or, you know, or praising sweetness, you know, as to, so I, I sometimes have to remind myself, that, you know, it, it's okay to say, uh, to tell my daughters they look pretty. <laughs> That's not in itself a bad thing. But, you know, one is a little bit more conscientious these days about about saying you're very brave or, or you know, one should be kind, one should be hardworking or diligent. Uh, I should have stick-to-itiveness and not just be pretty and sweet and uh, be agreeable. So, you know, with, 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 a, with a 21st century eye, all this talk of, of beauty being the value or the measure of the girl might feel a little funny. But, you know, I think in fairness to Larkin, he's responding to the kind of blessings and wishes that a girl might well receive in 1954. And, and if anything, he says, well, enough of all that. People will wish you those things. And hey, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with being good looking. Should it prove possible for you to be beautiful and run off a spring of innocence and love? Well, you're a lucky girl. But he wishes her something else. And, you know, the other voice I hear uh, in this poem, apart from the voice of the, the, the uh, you know, family friend, or the classical poet making her fine distinction, Sappho saying, you know, some say the heart thrills to this, I say it thrills to the sight of what one loves. In addition to those voices, I hear the voice of the, the wicked fairy in, uh, or I think in the original, in Grimm's, it's the, the, uh, it's the wicked, they're, they're not fairies, they're wise women, though, you know, translations of those kind of terms can be a little ambiguous. But the wicked fairy in Sleeping Beauty, she says, oh, all of these other ladies have given you their blessings already. They've, they've wished you beauty and grace and virtue and charm. How lovely. I'm going to wish you something different. And, you know, Larkin was kind of a wicked fairy as a, <laughs> as a poet. He was a contrarian. He was, uh, he certainly had a, a bitter and... Uh, cutting uh, view of human nature, but here he is—he is maybe the as with the the as with the wicked fairy, who turns her blessing into a curse. He turns his curse into a blessing. He says, "May you be ordinary." And in fact, what I mean by that is, you know, may you be spared the excesses of extraordinary distinctiveness, talent, beauty, greatness, specialness. May you not be special. May you enjoy your freedom from that condition. The, the poem is broken into two parts. It has irregular rhyme 
uh, sort of what I think of as a Verlieb um, scheme, though the the meter is more regular than something like, say, you know, Dover Beach. The rhyme is, is scattered all throughout the poem, but the, it's broken into two chunks, uh, which make up sentences, the first being 10 lines, the second being 14. While this doesn't really add up to much of anything in particular, it does somewhat remind me of the the imbalance of the sonnet shape, right? Tr- which traditionally is, is an octave followed by a sestet, a a problem followed by a consolation that never quite ma- uh, measures up. And here the consolation, you know, what follows the but, the volta of the second sentence is bigger, longer, more cumbersome, requires more clarification, but is ultimately better. At least if we believe, if we believe Larkin and maybe if we believe Ibsen as well. Maybe this is the kind of blessing Ibsen would himself have wished for Hedvig. I'll just read it one more time and then I will say goodnight. This is Born Yesterday. It's dedicate, the dedication underneath it. It says Born Yesterday for Sally Amos by Philip Larkin. Tightly folded bud, I have wished you something none of the others would. Not the usual stuff about being beautiful or running off a spring of innocence and love. They will all wish you that. And should it prove possible, well, you're a lucky girl. But if it shouldn't, then may you be ordinary. Have, like other women, an average of talents. Not ugly, not good-looking. Nothing uncustomary to pull you off your balance. That unworkable itself stops all the rest from working. In fact, may you be dull if that is what a skilled, vigilant, flexible, unemphasized, enthralled catching of happiness is called. That was Born Yesterday by Philip Larkin. Uh, And this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening. You can reach me as always at sleericketts at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. (laughs) 